I love this song because you'll see why. It is the absolute perfect introduction to the thrust of this morning's message, which happens to be primarily out of Philippians 4, chapter 8, but we will then head in a little different direction way down toward the very end as we work our way through this book. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything of excellence or anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Just a little heads up before I go any further. Some of you may love this message. This is a little more entertaining than usual. And at the same time, you just might not like it all that much and might even be inclined to send me an email. Whatever. Certainly won't be the first time. That is for certain. I want to ask you a question this morning, and that is, how do you determine what you watch, what you read, what you listen to, and all the various media that are available to us today? And as I was thinking through this at the very beginning of the preparation of this message, I thought, you know what, maybe you're being presumptuous there, PB. Maybe I should ask, how many of the Christ followers in here this morning give any thought to what you voluntarily ingest through the senses that God has created within each one of us? What I want to lay forth at the beginning here is an important caveat, which I touched on two weeks ago when I was talking about the unfortunate blockbuster movie Fifty Shades of Grey and the uh, book series by the same name. And I was referring to a Christian's response to the movie that I had read, rationalizing its popularity among Christian women, saying that it can be a touch point for Christians to talk to people about real love. And what I said back then was I totally, I understand that mindset and the heart behind that. And I think I mentioned, too, that I do that for various movies that are less than stellar out there. But, and there is a but there, there are certain lines that cannot be crossed by a people of faith, no matter what possible good might be able to come from it. Shortly after that message, I received uh, a few queries, 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 questions uh, about what a person committed to Jesus may and may not appropriately take in. And so I want to give another caveat as I attempt to give counsel regarding this, and here it is. That is, you cannot attempt to answer this kind of a question with a list. Because once you think you've got a pretty good list down there, you could fill in between every one of the, the lines. And when you, get, you think you've got that list done, then you can fill in the cracks. And when you get that done, you can fill in all the exceptions and the yeah buts and the what abouts. So you cannot answer this question with a list, much as some of us like, no, make it black or white. Yes, no, yes, no. I get that. But you can't always do that. In fact, the older you get in the Lord, the more you read his word, I find the less you can do that. Well, Nevertheless, some Christians have taken things into their hands with great motives and all, and they have answered this question for themselves by taking what they believe is the holy high road based on their convictions. In my experience, not infrequently, people of such conviction like to make sure that everyone within earshot knows that they do not own a Television. And it's kind of, you kind of get that air about them, too. No, we don't have a television in our home. I admire the intention. I truly do. And I even respect such resolve from anyone sincerely trying to control what goes into their families' minds. But on some occasions of these experiences, I subsequently have found out that these people who would not have a television in their home and are quick to tell you about it, have their own vast video library and gaming library. Now you say, 
well, so I'm sure it's filled with veggie tales and Billy Graham Association movies and all. But no! In my mind's eye, I am looking at one of these vast video libraries in this person's home. And I mean vast. They have probably a couple of hundred of movies. And there, there are the veggie tales and the, you know, the nice old movies and everything else. And then all the rest of them, though, are the same things that you were out in the movie theater and they're on TV and everything else. And I thought, boy, that's really interesting. It's interesting on two fronts. One, because of the sheer hypocrisy of it. But secondly, when you watch a video, this isn't true of all movies nor of all cable channels now. But I can give you a, a good example, and I may or may not when I get down the line here. But the, when you watch a video on a CD now, okay, you're seeing basically the as it came out in the movies. Now, basically, you're seeing it as it came out in the movies. When that same movie is on television, even still, frequently... Things like profanities and certain profanities anyway, and taking the name of the Lord in vain and all that are edited out. Which means having a television in your home could be safer than having your own video library. So that always kind of intrigued me. But then you get into the whole video gaming aspect of things. And i got to tell you, and I don't care whose toes I step on. Okay? Obviously. But one of the most popular video games out there today is, I don't know, there's always many versions of it, Call of Duty Black Ops. Sorry, guys. I know. <laughs> See, I'm already getting in trouble here from the river. Could I beef up security down here for a few minutes there? All right? Now, I'm not going to get, you know, into detail or anything else, right? I mean, for crying out loud, it was Airborne Paratrooper Infantry Vietnam Air. I was not in Vietnam. All right? So you can't blame the super sensitivity or something because I was in combat. I was not. Certainly trained for combat and went through all the games and everything else, but I was not in combat. World of difference. So you can't blame that. But I sat down one time at the invitation of this individual to play the game with them. I was aghast at the sheer nonsense of, of undescribable gore profanity, and I mean profanity, come on, I'm not a Girl Scout or Boy Scout or anything else now. The profanity, the, uh, just the whole, there's the whole thing about just blowing people away and kind of bloodlust and everything else. And honestly, I invite some of you to put that up against Philippians 4.8 sometime and just see what the Holy Spirit says to you. I'm not going to impose my convictions on you in that, but that's for what it's worth. And that's just one example. As I said, I admire the intention and the respect of an individual who is really trying to take control of their lives by getting rid of what uh, in fundamentalist circles is sometimes called Satan's electric one-eyed missionary, referring to the television. But if we're going to start taking things out of our life in an appropriate way, let's do so with some consistency and with some integrity. Well, the question then this morning is, what criteria do you use to decide, should, to decide, should I be putting this into my computer brain? GIGO. Ever heard of that? G-I-G-O. That is the proper pronunciation. For many years I called it GIGO until I looked it up on the Internet in preparation for this message. Supposedly it's pronounced GIGO. It was a computer term that they developed way back programmers. It stands for garbage in, garbage out. Meaning, you can't sit there and blame a computer for what comes out of here as far as faulty information or data because it all, it's only being put in there by a human being. The machine can't do it on itself, on its own. So if you put garbage into a computer, you're going to get garbage out of it. Referring to our brains, the song Petra, computer brains. It's a great illustration. Well, the Holy Spirit, knowing us all very well and throughout all of the ages, has the Apostle Paul write down this passage... First and foremost, in the context, to help the believers at Philippi. We never want to lose that context. Given the issues before the church, and I'm talking about the church of Philippi, regarding the two prominent bickering women, 
Paul is helping the Philippian believers to focus their minds on godly things that will help them, yes, in all ways in their walk of life, which is why this is beneficial today for us in our study. But at this moment in the writing of this word to the Philippians, it's meant to help them deal with the personal issues that they have in front of them in reaction to these women. Now, the derivative application for God's people throughout the ages is far-reaching. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything of excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind fixate or dwell on these things. So again, what do you use to evaluate what you bring into your life and into your family's lives. I assume everybody's familiar with Redbox. Not Breadbox. Redbox, whether or not you use it, they're the red pavilions in Hannaford, Shaw's, outside of CVS and all kinds of other places around the country. You can go and, you know, for a buck and a half or whatever, you can get a movie out of it. All right. So there you are, and you're standing in front of your Redbox Pavilion perusing the offerings of the week. And you're looking for something that you can just, you know, you're not looking for, 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 you know, something weighty, something heavy, something thought-provoking. You're looking for something in which you can just sit down and blob out to it. And you're looking at all these movies, 95% of which, if it's me, about 98% of which I've never even heard of. So one, you know, they're probably really stellar movies to begin with. But you're standing there trying to figure out a movie with which you can blob in front of. How do you start to evaluate what you're going to bring home? Or do you? Do you start with what is called the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America Movie Rating System? You know it, the G, the PG, the PG-13, and the R, which was started in 1968. I can tell you that the ratings are totally unreliable. Duh. And the criteria for those ratings, and this is just one reason why they're unreliable, changes just about every decade and for the worse. Meaning, what you would see as a PG-13 or our movie back in 1968 today is probably PG-13 or, and or PG. So, you know, that's not, that's not very reliable. Um, <laughs> back in 1968, the movie The Graduate, when it uh, premiered, or 1969, Dustin Hoffman, okay, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, um, was rated R. My mother, we won't go into this, okay, my mother took me, her 14-year-old son, to see the movie The Graduate. This is indelibly stamped on my soul. I've been to counseling. I just, you know. And I remember, you can tell this was dated. I mean, the, the whole epic I'm talking about. The lady taking, giving the tickets says to my mother, do you realize what you're taking your son in to see? God bless her. Of course, then, you know, I'm going, I mean, I knew nothing about the movie or anything else, the rating, nothing. And I'm like, hey, shut up, man. Sounds pretty good. You know? My mother said, and this is vintage mom, who's going to be here in June, Lord willing. She said, no, but I intend to find out. And with that, takes the tickets and takes me in to see The Graduate. Now, if you've seen The Graduate, by today's standards, I, I don't know that it would get a PG. I suppose it would still get a PG rating, but I, I don't know. Wasn't much there. To show you how things have changed, and I tried to remember the name of the movie, but I couldn't. I was perusing movies in Redbox, and I, I, I knew what the movie was that I was looking for, and this one was a particularly supposed to be a good, thought-provoking, based on a real story situation of a Christian. So it was Christian-valued movie and everything else. Do you know that it was rated PG-13, and when it explains why, it was for religious content? You know? God forbid that we should put out there and you know a G movie that has 
Christian truth in it. So just another example of how unreliable the MPAA movie rating system is. Now let's talk about G movies for a minute. This is where I know I'm just, I, you know, I don't enjoy getting in trouble, but I've gotten used to it, okay? So G-rated movies are usually reserved for children's movies, right? Yes, they are. Um, not always. There's a few wholesome exceptions out there, but that's pretty much the truth. And true, there probably, and I have to say probably, won't be any profanity or blatant sexual innuendo, but Christian parent, is that your only concern? As a parent of young children, Barbara and I were more concerned, honestly, about the systematic dismantling of God's values and truth in society. That is what is called the dismantling of a biblical worldview where God's wisdom and God's view of all things pertaining to life and godliness by way of the movie and the message of the movie are being intentionally and systematically dismantled. Now, that doesn't mean we, weren't, we were unconcerned about the sex and, and uh, profanity, but I'm saying that was a greater concern. So by way of mentoring in here this morning, even though you didn't ask for it, well, you did indirectly by showing up today. Let me mention, just as a good example that came to my mind, the G-rated Disney movie, the scandalous movie, The Little Mermaid. <laughs> 1989, just to give you perspective. Okay? My kids saw it with us. And, being very candid, I liked the movie. I enjoyed the movie. I loved the music. In fact, I loved the music so much that I went out and I bought a CD, and it's still in my musical library today. The music is, is genius as far as I'm concerned. But we're not talking about what kind of movies I like or anybody likes or you like. We're talking about whatever is honorable, right, true, pure, lovely, and good. Verse 8. Now, <laughs> anything I say before this already and from here on, do not take it as a movie recommendation. And you'll see why in a few minutes. But I have to give that caveat out there as well. When evaluated through critical eyes of things that really matter, or at least matter more important than some other things, the movie... The R-rated movie, The Patriot, but with Mel Gibson, which is a revolutionary, it's a, it's a you know, historical fiction based on the Revolutionary War. That was a much better movie when put through that screen or that sieve of verse uh, 4-8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. The Little Mermaid and many of Disney's movies are wretched, and here is why. One of the most successful strategies of Satan is to divide and destroy the authority and the stability of families. He, is he Satan, is accomplishing this in increments over the ages, primarily by bringing distrust and dissension into the home and ultimately striving and successfully gaining the allegiance of the child so that the child moves away from the parent, the loving, caring authority figure, and as their, as their, as their protecting authorities, and moving instead to themselves as being their own unilateral decision makers. Enter the public school system. And this is not just some kind of a cheap shot. The public school system, thanks to the patriarch of public education, John Dewey, were early adopters of the strategy of dividing and conquering the home. You doubt that? Read some of Dewey's writings. You don't even have to read a lot of them. He's very bold, very forthright about it. The cornerstone of this strategy is to instill within children at younger and younger and younger ages the idea that their parents are fools and that they 
only want to deprive them of happiness. It doesn't take much then to instill within them the sense that they, and not their parents, have the right, the right, the right to determine their own fate. And so as an extreme example, perhaps, today we have preteens, adolescents, with the help of the schools, without the knowledge of the parents leaving class on a school day to go have, I'm trying to be discreet here, a D&C. If you don't know what a D&C is, ask somebody. The strategy is drive a wedge between the children and their parents. Now let's get back to the Little Mermaid. Enter Ariel, the daughter of King, boy, I blew this in first service, and wasn't I told about it, King Triton. I said King Neptune. Uh, don't go from your memory ever, okay? Not when you're my age, anyway. So enter Ariel, who's the daughter of King Triton. And King Triton now, I mean, he's King Triton, right? He really isn't the Neptune figure. There's my escape there. <laughs> I'm never wrong. Um, but King Triton is not any kind of ordinary imbecile, but he is the king of the ocean. And all that that means. Now let me ask you parents who are familiar enough with the movie, a movie which is now 25 years old. How do you feel? Let me ask you, who by the end of the movie and with perfect intention is the know-nothing buffoon in this harmless G-rated children's movie and who is the bright intuitive heroine who obviously knows better than her seasoned, caring, loving old man. It is Ariel, the teenage punk daughter who wants to do it her way because the old man don't know nothing and just doesn't want me to be happy. And this, by the way, is not something that I got from a Christian website not something that I read from Focus on the Family. This is what Barbara and I got from knowing the Word of God and spending time with the Lord daily, which is just one of many reasons why I strongly urge us all the time to be in the Word daily and to work on reading through the Bible every year. The Holy Spirit starts inculcating God's value, God's wisdom for the world where things just pop out, where otherwise we become so insensitized like the frog in the kettle, if you know that illustration, where we just are gradually taken down roads, even as Christians, roads that we should never have gone down. Let me quickly add something, too. I'm not saying, go home now and burn the little mermaid. Have a little ceremony to teach your children. This is of the devil. The pastor said so today. Crank up that fireplace. We're going to have a burning of the little mermaid. We didn't watch it with our children just once. So I can't say, well, we didn't know it was in it the first time. But with all of the movies that we watched as a family, and I had pretty strict rules about what we would watch, and, and I pl applied that same rule to Barbara and myself. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. While the kids were in the home. And then it's like, hey, Call of Duty, man! Woo! No. I'm kidding. Trying to lighten things up in here. I'm getting a little concerned about my health. And I'm not talking about my bone marrow. We would watch movies that especially Disney, I mean, you can count on Disney as usually having something in there that's a dig either at family, at parents, or just is perverse in getting children's minds desensitized to weird things or even spiritual things. How many remember The Secret of Nim, I think it was called? Way, way, way long ago, okay? The Secret of Nim was an anima, well, duh, Disney animation that was hugely Nothing but New Age religion with crystals and everything else. And it came out right at the time of Shirley MacLaine and Carlos Castanedas and Ruth Montgomery, all the big gurus of the New Age movement. That wasn't coincidental. But we would watch these movies with our kids, and at an age-appropriate level, we would talk about them and talk about what was wrong with them. 
what was right with them. Rarely does just simplistic, and that's a key word here, does simplistic prohibition ever bring about really good results. But remember again, that's with the caveat of there are lines that none of us should ever cross. Well, so you can't use the MPAA thing. Uh, we know how unreliable that is. What about, uh, you know, like movie review sites? Well, that, you know, that takes some, uh, I'm not saying they can't be helpful, but just for kicks, um, I decided to take a movie that I was very familiar with and one that I love called Chariots of Fire. Okay, everybody, anyone familiar with that? It was the movie of the, you know, the Oscar movie of the year and the year that it came out. It is a pointedly Christian movie because it's based on the real, live, honest-to-goodness Christian missionary to China, Eric Little, who also happened to be an Olympic runner in 1924. And Eric Little was of such Christian faith that he found out the day he, or well, it wasn't the day of, that was movie stuff. In reality, when he found out that his qualifying heat, now understand everything that Olympian works for, his qualifying heat in order to advance was going to be on a Sunday. And he was of such conviction that he told the Olympic Committee, I will not run on the Sabbath. And, that, I mean, that's what the movie was about. He ends up being able to run in a different race that wasn't on the Sabbath and, against all odds, wins the gold medal. It's an absolutely exhilarating movie. The music in that by Vangelis is absolutely stunning. I also have the soundtrack to that movie as well. But So that's the setup now. So I go to, and I didn't know anything about this site. This is called parentpreviews.com. I wanted to see what they had to say about Chariots of Fire. Overall, okay, they started, overall, they gave the movie a B plus. I'm like, B plus? And I'm sitting there racking my brain. I've seen this, believe me, I've seen this more than once, okay? I've probably seen it ten times, and I have it in my library, which I can't play it, though, because it has, somehow, we bought it unknowingly, that it's got a foreign country code in it, and it won't play on our, not television, big screen. <laughs> no, it's a television, too. So anyway, I'm really familiar with this movie, and you'll see why I'm saying that. So anyway, they gave it a B plus. I'm like, B plus, what do you got to do to get an A plus? Well, okay, so then they divide, they break it down into violence, sexual content, language, alcohol, drug abuse. Okay, so here we go. This is this is mind boggling to me. Under violence. Now understand this is nineteen twenty four. The opening scene, they're getting off the train because they're arriving at Oxford, Cambridge. All right. And in the train station, there are war veterans from the First World War. And one guy in particular, he's got like a, a facial thing on that's kind of permanent from where he was obviously blown up or something. But, I mean, there he was. Here you go. Violence. Minor characters. Minor. It was like three seconds are depicted. Get ready to be shocked with war injuries. Okay. This one's even a bigger shocker. Starting guns, starting guns are used at the races. <laughs> Ready? Get set. Pow! No, starter said pow, which could be bang, which could be... Anyway. And then, still under violence, a character is upset about losing a race. And I'm sitting there racking my mind going, was there a tantrum? Was there a profane vodka? No, nothing like that. Anyway, so there you go, violence. Now, so, see, if you knew nothing about the movie and you're going to hear, you're like, oh, man, forget it. We're never watching that piece of junk. All right, sexual content. This gets scathing. Men shown without shirts in the locker room. And I know exactly what they're referring to in this next one. Brief kissing. Boy, I'll say. I think it was a bye, honey, kind of thing. Between an unmarried adult couple who were going to be and end up being married and all that. Now, under language, and I, I'm, I'm racking my brain. I would have watched this before today if we didn't have this stupid country code on the movie. Because now it's got my curiosity up. It says at least, at least six uses 
of mild profanity. I can't think of what they're talking about unless they're counting, I don't know if somebody said stupid or something. I don't know. Name-calling among young men. I don't remember anything there. Alcohol and drug use. Now, understand, in 1924, I kid you not, hard for some of you to fathom today, younger people. In 1924, smoking was considered healthy. I remember rummaging around an old bookstore a few years ago, and they had collections of old magazines, and there was uh, Look Magazine. I said Life in the First Year. It was Look Magazine. And on the back of Look, you know, the whole page, the whole spread, they were big magazine. The whole spread is for Chesterfield cigarettes. And there's a doctor in his white coat, and he's, like, given his endorsement of the cigarettes because they aid in digestion. Who knew cigarettes were health food? Okay? Did I hear an amen out there? What? All right, anyway. All right. So I, I have to give you that setup because this is a, supposed to be, you know, basically a, based on factual movie uh, in 1924. So smoking and drinking is portrayed among college students and athletes. When they say portrayed, they mean, yeah, there's, you know, I mean, there's a fleeting picture, you know, that sort of thing. And Olympic officials are shown smoking and drinking. Okay, so I'm saying, well, if I didn't know anything about that movie and I was a parent who was concerned, I'd be wondering about the profanity in particular. I think it depicted war injuries and they must show how they get blown apart or something or why would they have that in there? The guns used their races, that would have thrown me. Um, But anyway, so that's an unreliable way. So maybe you use instead personal recommendation. Now we'll get back to a comment I made a while ago. Personal recommendation to select something to blob to. Remember that we have differing sensitivities in areas of personal conviction, and I'm talking now about areas that are in that arena of what comes under Christian liberty. Remember, there's those lines you can't cross. I don't care what your convictions are and what you think your Christian liberties are. There are lines there. So this is all, though, now under this umbrella, though, of personal conviction. So remember, we have different sensitivities. And this is not only for the one receiving a recommendation, but also for you, like me, that I'm going to get to, about giving a recommendation. Now, to explain this a little bit, I know someone, for example, about these sensitivities, who's very sensitive to violence on the screen, almost any kind of violence. But this is due to the fact that they have had some very unpleasant experiences growing up in their life. So they would consider, like The Patriot, and I know this for a fact, a movie that I thought was, was really quite excellent. That's not a recommendation. That she would consider that movie quite offensive. And I perfectly understand that, and she is perfectly right. And that's a perfectly legitimate personal conviction to have. And now I said, as a matter of course, I do not recommend movies, period. And let me tell you why. So you got to go back a number of years to uh, not too long after the ever so controversial movie, The Princess Bride came out. I kid you not. I'm in the plastic factory waiting for some church somewhere to call me to be their pastor. And I'm in there, and my boss, who was a really solid Christian, in fact, we are still in touch today, and I mean as recently as this past week. We were very good friends. He was a very solid Christian. This guy was very normal. He wasn't until this. I didn't think it was was very weird or anything else, weird at all. So anyway, we got talking one day, and... uh, somehow the Princess Bride came up, and he was thinking about seeing it with his kids, and he asked me, knowing that I'd seen it, what I thought of it. And I was like, oh, man, you know, we went to the movie theater to see something else. Actually, I think it was a Disney flick we went to see. (laughs) It was a re-release of Snow White or something like that. And they were sold out, so we're there, and it's like, "Uh, let's go see The Princess Bride. I'm like, The Princess Bride, really? I had no idea what it was, but I didn't even... Turned out being one of my favorite movies of all time. That is not a recommendation. And I was revealing or, you know, relaying this to my boss who asked me what I thought of it. So I did. He comes in the next day, 
And he's like, nice movie you recommended. And I'm like, you're, you're kidding, right? Oh, no. And I go, what on earth were you offended by? Well, I'm not going to give real details because I'm real sensitive now to sensitivities in here. But if you know the movie, okay, uh, I almost said Ariel, um, Princess Butterquap, that's supposed to be funny, is, it, sorry, is in Prince Humperdinck's castle, okay, and she's, uh, she's pretty depressed because it looks like Wesley, after all, isn't going to, you know, end up rescuing her. And so she's down and despairing, and she's sitting at a desk that happens to have a letter opener on it, which looks like a dagger, and she takes the dagger and holds it like this, and she's contemplating, and Wesley appears, Okay. And Wesley makes a statement to her, which I know what it is, but I'm not going to reveal it to you. As silly as it is, but anyway, this is what offended him. And my mouth just dropped. And I said, I said right then and there, I said, never again am I going to recommend a movie to anybody. Now, there's a certain irony about the Princess Bride and his offense that also is illustrative. He was offended about this particular, you know, scene that, as far as I'm concerned, was nothing, and I'm pretty conservative, I'm pretty tight, in case you didn't guess that, um, but at the very beginning of The Princess Bride, the very opening, before, the, you remember, Grand, Grandpa comes over, Columbo, what was his name anyway, he comes over and he's the grandfather of little Fred Savage who's about eight years old and he's trying to convince to read him that he wants to read him this story called The Princess Bride. And he's an eight-year-old boy and he's like, are you kidding me? Like me at the movie theater, right? And so anyway, little Fred Savage, eight-year-old boy, gets frustrated with his grandfather and he takes the name of the Lord Jesus in vain. And I got to tell you, okay, when the first time I saw the movie, I just went, for crying out loud, why... Do they have to do that? Okay, and all the time since, because that's the only you know that we've watched the movie. I know exactly where it is, and even when I'm home alone, this isn't just because of the kids. All right, even before I was saved, I did not take the name of the Lord in vain. Go figure that one out. I just knew uh, no, you don't do that. And so now we just I mean it's that quick. If you know exactly where it is, you don't hear. Okay, well whatever. So here's my point. So here's this Christian who is offended by what I think is an absolutely non-offense, but apparently taking the name of the precious Savior Jesus' name in vain at the beginning of the movie wasn't even a consideration. I would argue that should be offensive to every Christian. But it wasn't. And so I just find those kinds of... Uh, those kinds of uh, things just just rather mind-boggling and shows sometimes the silliness of our thought processes and where we come out on the other end. But apparently Christians are confused about what to be offended by. Well, if you are not using biblically defined godly principles by which you consider what to put into your computer brains by design, you will, by default, resort to your personal desires, your personal likes, your personal dislikes, and your feelings as your judge of what you're going to get. Well, I just feel like watching this kind of a movie today. I like the actor. Boom, again. Now, we have done that, certainly, not knowing, reading what there was. I was like, oh, I think it's okay. We did it fairly recently. I don't remember the name of the movie. Barb picked it out. There you go. She's not here. Throw her under the bus. The woman whom thou gavest to me, she did cause me to sin. <laughs> Shh, that's our little secret. <laughs> it was a chick flick because I, the staff knows, man. No, I'm not going to go there. I've given my man card up so many times. But at any rate, we watched this movie and. I'm going to say probably six minutes into this thing. I look at Barb. She looks at me and she goes, you had enough? I went, yep. And that was it. Done. Instead of gutting through it, what we knew was not nowhere near honorable, right, good, true, worthy of praise, worthy, excellence, none of that. 
And you see, if you start making, not start, if you are making decisions for these things based on your just your likes, your desires, and your wants at the moment, that is a formula for a poisoned conscience and a hardened heart. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and of good repute, if there's anything of excellence and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Now, let me bring us back again to the context of verse 8, what I just read. It's, it isn't just a filter by which to judge what we put into our heart, mind, and soul to help all Christians in every age navigate the polluted waters of the media, nor is it simply a grid by which we decide what our kids can watch or listen to. For the Philippians, verse 8 was meant to help them in dealing with the two women, Euodia and Suntuke, who were dragging the whole church down, going back to last week's message. Don't let your minds dwell on the gossip Paul is saying, in other words, don't think on the things that you have heard about them or even that you've heard with your own ears as they were going at it, but rather dwell on good things, on godly things, things worthy of holy consideration. Otherwise, your own attitude is just going to be poisoned more and more and dragged down with them. So verse 8 is for the situation at hand in the book of Philippians, but it is excellent counsel for the whole of life which is why I believe God chose to record it for us. Now, Paul, interestingly, doesn't even elaborate on what qualifies each of those adjectives in verse 8, good, lovely, pure, you know, true, excellent, worthy of praise. You know, he could, he could have gone on with giving some examples of what those things are, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't construct a list for us for each of those attributes and how you're supposed to apply them. Instead, the Holy Spirit compels him to write verse 9. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You want to know how to apply verse 8? Look at me. Look at my life. Look at the things you've heard from me, what I've taught you, and imitate me and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is giving just one helpful way to figure out how to apply verse 8 to your life when you are willing to to seek help. You want to know how to be a better husband or a better father or a better mother or a better wife or how to be a better student or just a better kid or a better friend or what does it look like to be a godly employee or a godly employer? And what's the proper way to lose or win a competition? Find a person or persons who you kind of admire or at least respect the way they seem to have a handle on a particular area of life that you're struggling with. And yes, Barbara and I have done this our entire lives, especially frequently when we had children in the home. And ask those people or that person if they would be willing to meet with you so that you can get their wisdom and their experience in whatever it is, in applying for eight. And Paul's not being proud or pompous or boastful when he says, look, you guys can look to me as an example of how to put some of these things into practice. But I truly imagine from what we know of Paul, what we've already read in this book, and then especially in the book to the Corinthians and, with, and, and other things that we know have gone on in Paul's life, because they're recorded here, that Paul would also say, I do have some things put together, but don't imitate everything in my life. But those things that I do have put together through life experiences that have now been sanctified by the power of God, follow my example. And you can have a certain expectation, if you do, of God blessing you because you are living right. You are living His way. Which means you are making decisions based on His principles pertaining to all things pertaining to life and godliness, Second Peter 1.3. Remember, there is a proper pursuit of prosperity, meaning shalom. Shalom doesn't just mean peace. Shalom is the, you know, the uh, everybody understands, oh, shalom, it means peace. Uh, the concept of the Jewish shalom 
goes from here to here, covering the entire breadth of life, and it pertains to financial and material wealth. It really does, but it contains everything pertaining to just life and success in life and the blessing of God and peace and contentment and harmony and joy and all of that. That is what shalom is. So when I wrote about the proper pursuit of prosperity, it wasn't just a, uh, you know, how to bilk, you know, how to fleece the sheep for more and more so you can get a higher pay or something like that, or how you can bend God's arm around his back to make you, you know, make him give you the, the fancy job or car or boat or whatever it is that you wanted lately, like the prosperity preachers preach. The proper pursuit of prosperity pertains to the whole blessing of God in all areas of life. And there is a proper way to do that and to think through that. And when you read the Old Testament, there's a formulaic pattern that's repeated many, many times over where God says, look, you, my children, if you do this, me, I, the creator of the world, the creator of the universe, omnipotent, all-powerful, if you do this, I will do this, meaning for you. And if you don't do this, I will do this to try and urge you to do what is right. And that formula did not change in the New Testament. The minutia of it did, to be sure. We're no longer under a sacrificial system and all that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that there is still blessing in obedience which opens the gates of biblical shalom, of biblical prosperity, which begins first with submission to the lordship of Jesus. Notice I didn't say to the saviorship. I, with John MacArthur and many other guys, it's not universal in the, the, the true body of Christ, Many good people on the other side of this, but I happen to to uh, believe in lordship salvation. Meaning just because you said a prayer somewhere down the line confessing that you're a sinner and you're receiving Jesus as Lord, and that's as far as it's ever gone, Jesus has never been your Lord in any stripe, that's not real salvation. So the first step in that shalom and the proper pursuit of prosperity is submitting yourself to the lordship of Jesus, meaning his way, not your way. The second is just a practical um, observation, and that is there is a necessity for us to master a gigantic hurdle, which I believe is perhaps the single greatest downfall of people who are used to abundance especially, and that is that hurdle is learning to be content. Lack of contentment is perhaps the greatest reason for the woes of highly blessed Christians and why the promise of the peace of God that we talked about last week in verses 6 and 7 do not often seem to work. So Paul says that we can look at him and imitate his example in this, which looks like what? Verses 10 and 11. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now get ready. Not that I speak from want. Here it is. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul is pleased that this church has always been ready to do something more practical for him beyond just praying and providing him helpers as they had done in the past. But he notes, too, that even his mentioning his appreciation for past financial support and now apparently future financial support of him is not because he is simply tired of barely making it all the time. Paul's standard of living was not the focus of his existence. His focus was getting the mission done and looking for the next one that God would lay upon him. His focus was on being a servant of God, realizing that he had been bought with a price. His life wasn't his own. It belonged to the Lord God Almighty. And all these thoughts are born out of his writings to all the other churches that he wrote, on top of what he wrote earlier in this book, in the first chapter, verse 21, when he writes, For me to live is Christ. 
verse 12, Paul writes, I know how to get along with humble means. But I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and also of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So what's the secret? I mean, is it, he says, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. So what is that secret? Verse 13. I put this up here particularly. This uh, is my navigator's topical memory system that I got when I was a brand new baby Christian. Um, the pack included the little leather holder. That is as old as 1974, I think. Still is on my desk. I still go through the verses that are in it. And what it does is it gives you a topic, his strength, and then a verse, and then where it's located and some other information there. This is what Paul says. This is the secret to being content in everything, in all circumstances, is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Verse 14 and 16. Nevertheless, he writes, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessaloniki, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And so here we are towards the conclusion of this letter, and we see pretty clearly why the Philippian believers had a special place in Paul's heart. When no other churches were providing Paul any kind of help or support, the Philippians were. The Philippians were. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything of excellence or anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Jim Higgs. You do know that that tape is recording what you said about Barb? Can you get that part out? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and again another message which brings us information and application and can bring transformation. God, I pray that each one of us here this morning We'll focus on the things that are godly. Practice them, O oh God. Father, pray that the Holy Spirit this morning, if there is somebody here that has not yielded their life to you, I pray in Jesus' name that you become Lord of their life. In his name I pray.